0: Our scripture reading is in Isaiah 58, so turn there. But to the Promise team, I love having you here. And as you're walking up, uh, Baruch Hashem Adonai. Um, that is not Arabic, right? No, that's Hebrew. Uh, how many times do you have folks from Egypt singing Hebrew. It's because when our faith is in Jesus, we are brought into one family, one family, singing blessed be the name of the Lord. Oh, so great. Thank you. Thank you. Well, Isaiah chapter 58, um, it's the text that stands at the heart of so much in the New Testament. It's the heart of Jesus teaching in Matthew 25 when he says, uh, you visited me in prison. Uh, When I was hungry, you fed me. And they said, when do we do that? He said, when you've done it for the least of those, you've done it for me. He drew upon this text. So it's a text that we need to hear. So let's stand because we will be hearing the word of the Lord. Beginning with verse 1. Shout it loud. Do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob their sin, for day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commandments of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today And expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Uh, Only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed? And for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast? A day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? Your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and He will say, Here am I. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with a pointing finger and malicious talk, And if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will always guide you. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations, and you will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. And this is the Word of God. Thanks be to God. All right, when we open this book we turn to Genesis 1 and 2, we see that everything in God's creation is right. Then when we took to, uh, turn to the end of the book, Revelation 21 and 22, we see that everything in God's recreation is right. No tears, no war, no sorrow. In between... And right now, here in Pasadena, everything is not right. Can I hear a witness? Can I hear a (laughs) witness? But Revelation 21 and 22, that's real. That's going to happen. God is going to do a work where everything that is messed up and wrong is made right. Uh, and, And that involves you and me. That Jesus came to make us right with God, to forgive our past and not to leave us there, but to remake us until we are conformed to the image of Jesus. Hallelujah. And more than that, even as he is remaking us, he sends us as his ambassadors to be salt and light, to be involved in his right-making mission. And the word for that is, he sends us out to do justice. And that's what I want to talk about in the few moments that I have. And because that idea is so controversial, doing justice, and because it is so central to who God is and what God is doing in this world at the same time, I just want to get straight at it, all right? I just want to get straight at it. I want to ask this question. What does justice mean? And Isaiah 58 becomes a great, great guide because I just want to tell you, I don't think our world gets it. I don't think our world understands what biblical justice is all about. What the Bible talks about when you find that word, sometimes translated God's righteousness, but the same word. Uh, what the Bible talks about is very different from what politicians talk about. You know what politicians talk about when you hear the word justice. It's, it's taking all of the power and force of government, uh, having taxes, to force people to redistribute wealth. It's what Marx talked about and socialists talk about. That's not what the Bible talks about when it talks about justice. You heard me there, right? It's not forced from above and by the government. Moreover, the other way that I hear people talking about this word justice is they talk about it in a very self-centered sort of way. Anytime something in the world doesn't seem fair to us, especially to me personally, we say it's unfair. It's unfair. And it's unjust. Well, the Bible doesn't talk about it that way either. You know what the Bible talks about? It talks about it in this way. It's talking about being involved in the world becoming what God says I have created it to be. It's what Jesus came to give his life to do. And the word justice in the Bible is directly tied to a beautiful Hebrew word called shalom. We just usually translate that as peace. Peace. But it's a much bigger notion. Shalom means well-being. It's the way things God intended them to be. And we saw it back in Genesis 1 and 2. You know, when God created the world in Genesis 1 and 2, there was this beautiful, complex, uh, interwoven fabric of everything that God made and everything was in sync with one another. And in Genesis 2, the very heart of it was our relationship with God. But that relationship with God affects everything else. It affects our relationship with, with ourselves, how we view ourselves. And, and it affects the way we treat people and see people. And it affects the way that we deal with our world. We care for it. If, if God is at the center and we know He made it all, that, that's what it's supposed to do. But Genesis chapter 3, in this interconnected world, people walked away from God and everything got messed up. And it's been happening for generations. And so that what we see around our world is this fabric of God's creation just unraveling. Maybe you felt that. Maybe you feel like sometimes your own life is unraveling. Try to come up with an illustration. So I have one. See, who am I going to pick on? Dwayne, you told me I can't. Jeremy. (laughs) Run up here. You got to come up here. I was talking about this with my assistant, Tiffany. And I said, I need some sort of a fabric here so I can show you. See a very nice piece. Can, can you see this? Do we have that? Up? Oh, there it is. It's, I, I put it in a color that you can actually maybe see from way up there in the balcony. You see it up there? All right. This looks, this looks like it's almost perfectly knitted because Tiffany did it, Jeremy. So I'll have you hold it. But, but wait a minute. I see a flaw here. See that? I'm just going to pull it right out. Get rid of that thing. Wait, let's Get rid of that. Wait a minute. Let's, let's keep going. Here, Jeremy, don't, don't let anybody know. What? Wait a minute. If I keep going, there's going to be nothing left. And I have an 11 o'clock service to do. All right. Here's, here's what we do, Jeremy. You take it down. You stuff that all back in and make it look okay, perfect. Yeah. And we'll get it ready for 11 o'clock. You know, in a fabric, well done, Jeremy. This is a good job. Uh, In a fabric like that, there's sometimes pieces like this where the whole thing is interconnected. In fact, some of you who make these things, sometimes when you have, in complex ways, interconnected fabrics, it makes it warmer, so beautiful, and uh, sometimes it's much stronger. But in that sort of a fabric that everything is interconnected, if one part of it is frayed or one part of it gets broken, everything starts falling apart. Have you noticed that? And then you try to figure out how do we hold this together? And that's what's happening to our world. God built it in a way where it's all interdependent and it's all connected. And there have been generations of this thing fraying. But God declares, I love the world. And so He came to repair what is broken. And He starts with you and me. Thank you, Lord. We see parts of our lives broken and He's not going to leave us there and it was costly. Jesus had to come to do it. And He promises that when He's done, He's going to make us new. And then amazingly... While God is remaking us, again and again, the Bible says, He makes us His ambassadors. And He sends us out into His mission. And when we see places where there is pain and hurting and the fabric of God's world and the people made in the image of God are hurting, we step in with the resources that God has given to repair and to restore. When we see people leaving God out of their lives, we say, Good news. God is ready to come back into your life and through faith in Jesus, your life can be made right. Moreover, we go out into the world as Jesus did, and when we see people hurting, we say that's not the way God made his people to live, and we use his resources to make a difference. What kinds of things am I talking about? The same kinds of things Isaiah talked about. If you look at verses 6 and 7, you'll see what he's getting at, that when we'll see people treating, being treated unjustly or oppressed or in prison... Or trapped by addictions. We say God didn't make human beings in His image to live that way. And we step in and bring some of the hope and healing of God. When we see people with no food to eat. When we see people who have no place to sleep. No place to live. And especially if you get on down into verse 7. When we see our own flesh and blood. And I think that often means our spiritual flesh and blood. Our brothers and sisters in Christ hurting and not having enough. And we have something God's entrusted to us. Food or or shelter or, or words of counsel. We use what God has given to us to make a difference in their lives because that's what God is doing. His work is He's going to make all things new. Revelation 21 and 22, and He gives us the privilege of stepping into that. And so the perspective that we have is this. We go out into our world, we've been breathing in, we go out into the world, and as we see places where the fabric is being broken, we ask God to give us wisdom to know what difference we could make. One of our missionaries, Lisa, one of our missionaries taught me about this so much. I was with Randy and Edie Nelson. I've told you about this before. <laughs> I was with them after they had been among kind of Stone Age people in, in, in Kenya and then had done the work, and God sent them to Thailand, and they were in big cities. They would walk in, and you know how Randy does it? Wherever we go as God's people, this is how we live. And he says, what's not right about this community? And the first thing that screamed out at him was seeing all these beautiful young people trapped in that trafficking industry. He said, God didn't make his children to live that way. I have to step in and bring some of the hope and shalom of God. And you know churches have been planted and people are being set free, and this is just how we live. That's what it means. It means we see what is wrong as God does and are willing to do what Jesus did personally, step in and use what, what God entrusts to us to make, bring about his healing so that things can become right again. You say it's too big. <laughs> Fabric's too frayed. And God says, I'm drawing together people from every tribe and language and nation. Just start with them and you will see that what I promise will happen will happen. That's what it means. Now, I better move on. How important is it for you and me to be involved in this kind of work, to act justly? Uh, And and you can look at verses 6 and 7 and then down on again, and and you'll see that it's really important. In fact, if you have your Bibles, look at verses 1 and 2. Some people are shocked when they read verses 1 and 2 and then read the rest. Now, I have to tell you, when I read it, you didn't look nearly shocked enough. So I I think you didn't even notice it. Do you notice that in verse 2... God says that he is speaking to people. He says, day after day, the people I want you to preach to, Isaiah, they seek me out. And that is a Hebrew idiom, that seek me out for what we're doing right now, for all of the worship life of of the people of God. It involved their temples. It involved their synagogue, their sacrificial system, things like fasting that he talked about. So he is talking to people in our day who showed up at the nine o'clock service at Lake Avenue Church And are involved in Bible studies and trying to serve all those things that are a part of what we call breathing in so that we can know God better. They were involved in doing it. And they did it regularly. They didn't just show up at Easter day after day. They're involved in breathing in. So you think, well, they must be the good ones. Look at verse 1. These are the ones that he says, Isaiah, you've got to preach. And when you preach, you've got to preach loud because they're not going to listen to you. They've learned to tune me out. Raise your voice like a trumpet and declare to my people their rebellion. And to the descendants of Jacob their sins. Wait a minute. Pastor, you're supposed to be preaching to those people out there who don't show up at church, not to us who have to come and listen to you so much. You've got to preach to them. Don't you see this? What did they think? They thought, well, this is the way to identify with God. Just come and kind of punch the clock in church. Yes, we have a little fasting. We'll do that. We'll bow down. We'll do a little of that. But their lives were not changed. Breathing in must result in breathing out. It must result or it's not real. So they thought they were connected with God. And especially, they said they were worshiping God. But then they would go out into the workplace or into their families or neighborhoods and just ignore people or even themselves. Mistreat people. Read the text and you will see it. And God says, that is the surest evidence that you do not know me. That you've never really experienced my mercy and my grace. They're singing the songs, listening to the messages, taking the fast days. But then they don't go out in the name of God and live the lives that they're supposed to live. What kinds of things were they ignoring? Well, just look at verses 6 through 8 again. I'll, I'll list them for you quickly. They were not caring when people were shackled, whether in prisons or addictions or, or or anything, because we will want people to be set free as God is setting us free. Amen? Verse, verse 7, the first phrase, they were not sharing the food that God had entrusted to them with the hungry. And people made in the image of God should not go hungry. In their day, there were a lot of immigrants moving into the community, and you can see that he talks about that. Uh, when he says in, in verse uh, 7, to provide the poor wanderer with shelter, poor wanderer for the many immigrants that were coming into Israel. Um, in Israel, the family was the social welfare system. And and these people didn't have their families. But they were God's people, made in God's image, right? And so we can't leave people just without a place of shelter. Human beings aren't meant to have that. It means getting them out of Homelessness. It means also providing clothing when we see people who don't have it in in that uh, next phrase in verse 7. And in the last phrase, the responsibility we have to provide focused care for our flesh and blood. Don't turn away from your own flesh and blood. And I think that especially means those of us who are in the church family, but also to our people that we're biologically related to. In summary, if I can just put it together, how important is this to live this way and to go out representing God? Isaiah 58 essentially teaches this. You think you're connected to God when you just show up and punch the clock in the worship activities. But I must tell you this. If you know me, then if we do not love the poor, we don't love those who are hurting, the hungry, the imprisoned, the alienated, then God's word declares we don't really love God in whose image they are made. We can't say that we love God and then we don't love our brothers and sisters. If that happens, we just show up and then go go out and live the way we otherwise would, expecting God to do something for us because we want to manipulate Him. That's not true, true faith in God. The way we know that we are connected with God is that we have His heart and we engage in His mission in this world. Now, our time's gone. I've got to turn it over to Lisa, but let me just ask this last question. What's ever going to motivate us to live this way? Um, You can read about the motivations that are there, but I'll at least tell you some things that don't work. I call them miserable motivators. We are not going to be motivated to stop living for ourselves and truly giving ourselves for those made in the image of God who are hurting. We're not going to be motivated by guilt. I I just thought... Up to now, have I made you feel pretty guilty in church, even when I read the text? I've learned over all these years of being a preacher that guilt doesn't last. You go out feeling a little bit guilty, I better do something, but it just blows over. God hasn't made us so that guilt's going to motivate us long. We learn to become callous to it, so it has to be something different. God never motivates by guilt in the Bible, nor is it that we are motivated by thinking, this is the way I can earn God's favor. You know, if I show up at church, then he has to do something good for me because I did something good for him. So God doesn't say, all right, you people, my people, you've shown up for all the worship stuff and you've tried to live a moral life, not doing what everybody in the world is doing. Now, but there's one thing you're missing. You know it. And the one extra work you have to add to it is help the poor sometimes. Then life will be good and I'll do whatever you want. Did you notice that wasn't there? Well, even when I think about it, it just makes me tired And we'll never do it perfectly anyway. So just mark it down. You and I are not saved by works. You know that. It's by God's grace. So that's not going to motivate. We're not going to be motivated by fear because the Bible doesn't teach do good things or God is going to get you for it. And we're not going to be motivated by pride. The Bible never says, well, do good and everybody around you will think you're a good person and you'll feel good about yourself. Because that's just a selfish motivation. And you know, the thing that really breaks that fabric is our own pride and selfishness. So, making you you and me more selfish isn't going to help anything. Oh, Pastor, then there's no motivation at all for this. Let me tell you the two things that motivate us as believers. And I pray again, I'll just reinforce them. uh, It's humble gratitude for God's grace and love shown to us. We come in and we take communion. And we know the only way that you and I can God do he, His justifying work in us is because Jesus had to give His life, shed His blood on the cross. When we received communion, did you think, Lord, I can't believe, knowing me, that You did this for me? It's in view of God's mercy, Romans 12, 1, that we say, yes, I'll offer my life to You as a living sacrifice. That's what real worship is all about. So if you come today and you just feel deeply, Lord, you know me and you're willing to love me and remake me anyway. If you feel that deeply, then your only response can be, then how can I live in a way that honors you? What motivates us is just humble gratitude for this incredible grace that we've received. And we know it's not just for us, but for all. And then the second motivation is just there in measure in Isaiah 58. I hope you'll go back home and read it today. And it is this incredible joy that God gives us when we begin to go out and participate in his healing, right-making work in his world. Uh, when we just live for ourselves, we just keep wanting to have more. Have you ever noticed that? But when we look and say, everything that I have, even if it isn't very much, Lord, how can I use it? to restore some people who are hurting, and to repair some of the breaks in the fabric of your creation. I'm telling you, our lives come to life. And uh, I'll just show you the, the text that is there in the book of Isaiah. Verse 8 of Isaiah 58. When you and I begin to live that way, the thing that will keep us going is, we'll see this, then your life will br- light will break forth like the dawn. And as you're engaged in li- living for God, your own healing. Will appear. Then you will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. Brothers and sisters, that's us. When we see as God sees, when we come to breathe in and meet Him again and thank Him again for His mercy, and we go out to live for Him. This is the way God's people lived in Isaiah's day, or were supposed to live. This is the way Jesus told us to live in Matthew 25. This is the way you and I are called upon to live when we're here in Pasadena, California. And if God uproots us and takes us all the way to Tanzania, this is simply the way we see the world and we live life to the full. So I'm going to ask Lisa, Lisa, will you come up? I know you have been involved. This text, I know, has been central to your ministry and you've been involved in this work. I'd love to have you share with us some lives in which you see this happening so that we can be praying about how it might look here in Pasadena and San Gabriel Valley. So good to have you home. Thank you. Look forward to
1: sharing. Thank you. Well, it is a delight for me to be home in Pasadena. It's fun for me to get to come back and share with you. Lake Avenue has hundred or hundred-something years of history in global missions. And Byron and I are a little tiny part of that heritage. We are privileged and honored and so thankful to be a part of that. And I've been tasked this morning to share with you a little bit about how Wild Hope is trying to live out this Isaiah 58 mandate. Wild Wild Hope is um, a small organization made of friends, and our little tagline is transformation through empowerment. We're trying to see communities transformed by empowering leaders. And sometimes that looks like straight, good, old-fashioned discipleship. Peter out in the bush meeting with 20 Maasai leaders for a week of intense discipleship course that he calls a deep-level discipleship. Sometimes it looks like something very practical, a hands-on how can we dig these farms so that the soil isn't washed away? Sometimes it's a micro loan. We're involved in many different ways of trying to see transformation through empowerment. And this morning I get to tell you two stories of lives that we've seen transformed. Well, what can you do with a dollar? What can you do with one dollar? How about two? Sarah Galassi didn't think she could do much with $2 either, but she knew she needed to do something. Sarah needed to do something with her less than $2 that she was earning each day because she had children to provide for, two kids. Her husband had deserted them. Her husband had left her as the sole caregiver and the sole provider for their two small kids, and Sarah was trapped. Sarah was trapped by her own lack of education. She had gone to school to a certain level, and she was a reader. So that was great. That's a plus. But she had no real employable skills. She had nothing that she could um, offer to a good-paying company. Sarah was trapped in her own poverty, in her own lack of education, in her own, um, yeah, like I said, the lack of skills. But she was also trapped in a miserable living circumstance. Because she couldn't make more than somewhere between a dollar and two dollars a day. Sarah hadn't been able to move out of the little hovel of a room that she'd been living in in her in-law's compound. And that's where her husband continued to live as he paraded his girlfriends in and out. And she lived there in kind of that shame and rejection and the sense of hopelessness and entrapment. Well, Sarah had a neighbor whose name is perhaps ironically, perhaps fortuitously, perhaps um, prophetically. His name is Prosper. And Prosper is a friend of ours. He's a friend of Wild Hope and an employee of Wild Hope. He's a great source of joy and laughter in our midst. And, uh, yeah, he works with us, especially when we take groups out to the bush for cultural experiences and to see what God is doing among our Maasai friends. But Prosper knew that Wild Hope had a small micro-lending initiative. Micro loans, little tiny loans. And why do we have that? We have micro lending as an important part of what we do because we believe that a hand up can change somebody's life. And because all of us on our team have accumulated quite a number of years in Africa and we've kind of come to the conclusion that a lot of free money hasn't done Africa a lot of favors. And there are times when aid money is needed and should be given free God calls us to that, and I believe that it's right. And as the mother of some, my third child going to college this fall, I'm looking for free money. But overall, there's um, a sense of dignity that comes with a loan, and so Wild Hope is excited about micro lending. And Sarah came to us with Prosper as her reference and her friend, and she said, "I need." just a little something to get going in a business, and so she sat down on our porch with Byron, my husband, and talked through her ideas, and she took out a, a loan of something that was close to $200, and Sarah started selling secondhand clothes, high-quality secondhand socks. She decided that socks was her niche, and she was a street vendor, and she started selling socks on the streets of Arusha. And pretty soon, she was able to move her children out of that humiliating and um, non-nurturing environment to a better housing situation, provide for their care, feed them, and have the dignity that she knew she was doing this. And she paid off that first loan, and she came and took a second small loan, and she expanded her business She started sourcing the clothes herself and traveling to the coast where she could buy them in bulk and bringing them back up and setting up in a market so she doesn't have to be walking the streets, which is a better situation for a single woman to be in the safe environment of a market. Byron and I were on the phone yesterday with Skype. I love Skype. It's different than when we went out in 84 when we couldn't talk for months at a time to the States. I was on the phone with Byron through Skype yesterday, and he was looking up Sarah's records. He said, Oh my goodness, Sarah's about to pay off that second loan. Sarah's our poster child of on time, pay it back, change your life person. And Sarah's life has been totally transformed, totally redeemed into a healthy situation by less than $400. And we at Wild Hope just count it a privilege to be a part of Sarah's story. Now, Joyce is in a totally different situation. Joyce doesn't live in the city. Joyce lives way out in the bush. The bush is a funny, vague term that we use in Africa. It just means the wilderness. But when I think of the wilderness, I think Alaska. Bush is definitely Africa. So when I say the bush, I just mean all that beautiful, untouched creation. And out in the bush is where we don't have paved roads and phone lines and all of the rest of that. Joyce lives out in the bush. She's a Maasai woman. Six children, no education. She's not a reader. And just a few years ago, Joyce was known as one of the most needy women in her community. The husband that struggled with alcohol, the little tiny uh, resources that they maybe would come by, would be gone pretty soon. And Joyce begged for every morsel that her children ate and every piece of clothing that they wore. But Joyce was a part of a small church the church that's a friend of Wild Hope, and she was always hungry for the word of God. A lot of the uh, leaders in that church have said that about her. Joyce is is somebody that we remember as coming very needy and also very hungry for God's word. And so about seven years ago, when uh, Wild Hope started the Artisan Project, Joyce was chosen to be one of the artisans. So let me tell you briefly what the artisan project is. Outside in the foyer, you see the table with the beadwork that's for sale. Our Maasai women are using their traditional art form to create beautiful handmade beaded projects that we sell. So we've connected them with market. We've connected these women who live so far out in the bush and have no ability to get their products Uh, someplace where it can be sold. We bring it over in the suitcase of every visitor who ever comes to see us. You will get a heavy bag of beads to take home to California to our incredible volunteers on this side who receive it and and, uh, deal with it on this side. But the Artisan Project is a kingdom business that's meant to give viable income to women but also to form them into small groups and to disciple them And to teach them about some business practices, about saving, about giving back. Joyce is known as somebody who gives back to her community. She's a generous woman. And she was chosen purely because of her neediness. Not because she was a great leader, because she wasn't. And not because she was a great beater, because she wasn't. But she learned very quickly. The other women in that original small team of beaters were Uh, more likely to have been strong beaters. That's why they were chosen, needy and strong beaters. But Joyce was just, this is the most needy person. And she's now a trainer of other women. And that project that started seven years ago with just a handful of women now supports 140 Maasai ladies who work full-time to provide for their families by making these beautiful products. And we know that if 140 women are gainfully employed, that means 140 families and extended families and cousins of extended families (laughs) are being provided for and giving back to their community. And they're known, the church leaders in that area tell us, yes, these women are known as generous. And they tithe and they give to the schools. They've been discipled in how to handle what God has blessed them with. And so Joyce's life has been transformed because she came into contact with our little efforts to do something for the kingdom that would practically help and change people's lives. She's delighted to educate her children and see them getting the education that she never had. And she is a witness to her husband, a strong uh, light in the community, and somebody who continues to be hungry for God's word. When we show the um, little video in a minute here that my friend Shannon made about the Artisan Project, It's going to take the whole project to another level, which so excites us. It's a byproduct, if you will, that we never expected. And yet it's something that was obviously front and center to the Lord. Because we set out because we were concerned about women at risk and women who didn't have a way to provide for their families. And yet God has given us the opportunity and the privilege to partner with church planters out in the bush, Maasai men and women who are missionaries to their own people, men and women that we actually know from our years in Kenya because we were involved, some of us were involved with these exact men discipling them, but that's a different story and a different part of our history, but they are now missionaries to their own planting churches among the Maasai, but um The way that their organization set it up, they received funding from the West for a time and then were weaned off of that in hopes that the Maasai Church would be able to support them. But actually, the Maasai Church is not still able to do that. It's still such a poverty-stricken area. And they have remained among the Maasai because they have become beaters and they are managing our project and earning income themselves through the, uh, the Artisan Project So our artisan project is funding the planting of churches among the Maasai, and what's so exciting is that one of the couples who is not featured in this video, but Solomon and Sarah are soon leaving to leave their own people group now and go to a further tribe, go farther in, let's say, and continue to become um, now cross-cultural for themselves, church planters, in an unreached area of Tanzania, and they will continue to be funded by the Artisan Project. We consider that an incredible privilege. Now, Joyce, as a non-reader, and like many of the people in the churches that our Maasai friends are planting um, churches among, are not readers, like I said. And the area that Solomon and Sarah will go to will be predominantly non-readers. You know there's Approximately a billion people around the world who do not read. I don't know what the percentage is in the states. I forgot to look that up. In Tanzania, it's about 15 percent are illiterate. But a billion people around the world who can't just around the world who can't just pick up the word and study it for themselves. And they receive the word of God through their ears, and it penetrates into their hearts and their spirits. And I just want to close now before we go to the video by rereading Isaiah 58, because this is such a powerful and beautiful passage. And when I read it a few weeks ago in preparation, I thought, this passage teaches itself if we hear it. So I want to read it to you, but you're not allowed to follow in your Bible, and you're not allowed to watch a PowerPoint, because I want you to think about a billion people around the world whose only opportunity will be to hear it through their ears, and the Spirit of God... Will use that just as well as he will use reading and study. So, in solidarity with them and what the Spirit of God wants to do around the world through people who are not yet able to read, I would read for us a portion of Isaiah 58. Shout it aloud. Do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion. And to the house of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways, as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you haven't seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you haven't noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for a man to humble himself? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying on sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast? A day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke. To set the oppressed free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here am I. If you do away with the yoke of oppression and the pointing finger and the malicious tongue, and if you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. You will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden like a spring whose waters never fail. Let's pour ourselves out. It's what God is doing. We follow one who poured himself out completely. It's what he's calling to, calling us to, in whatever context we're in. Let's pour ourselves out. Dear Lake Avenue family, Thank you for partnering with what God is doing around the world.